0: One to three and eleven to thirty-two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." And so he told them this parable: It was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me." And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered his property. "'has gathered all all that he had "'and took a journey into a far country, "'and there he squandered his property in reckless living. "'And when he had spent everything, "'a severe famine arose in that country, "'and he began to be in need. "'And so he went and hired himself out "'to one of the citizens of that country, "'who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. "'And he was longing to be fed with the pods "'that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. "'But when he came to himself, he said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him, And and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, um, we give you praise and honor and thanks for this day, Lord. We thank you for calling us, Lord, out of our beds and into worship. Lord, here with a gathered body, Lord, we pray, God that, Lord, as we worship you, Lord, through your word, we pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, help us to believe and to understand, Lord, what you were calling us to here in this in this parable, Lord, that, Lord, help us to understand, Lord, the meaning of repentance, Lord, but also the meaning of your love for us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week um, we we considered just a few chapters over the bear the parable. Of the barren fig tree. And and we noted that our text for last week and then this week really emphasize this key characteristic of repentance in our journey with Christ, not only through the Lenten season, but also through our entire lives. But in, in the first two weeks of Lent, we saw how Christ Himself displayed proper obedience to the Father, and how he did so out of his sonship to the Father. And in Christ we have the perfect example of what it means to be sons of God. But for us, a sinful and fallen humanity, these two texts, the one last week with the barren fig tree and now this week, these two texts really force us to reckon with the reality of our need to repent. And to use the illustration from the parable of the barren fig tree from last week, our regular Lenten practices of, of fasting and, and prayer and repentance, these, these are the manure that Christ places on our roots that force us to bear good fruit for the kingdom of God. But We also see through our text this morning that Jesus is still continuing to stress this theme of repentance. He's not done. So if if last week was a warning on the necessity to repent, then this text really is a beautiful example of how God responds to us when we do turn to him in repentance. And now other than possibly the parable of the Good Samaritan, this might be the most popular of Jesus's parables. But usually when we come to it, we rightly and immediately see the necessity for the younger son to repent. We get that at the very beginning. But as we make our way through this parable, we, are, we realize that this parable is probably ultimately directed at the older son and his response to the younger son. And we see that just in those first three verses of this passage. In verses 1 to 3, again, we read this. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him. They were drawing near to Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're noticing this, and they grumble, and they say, This man receives sinners and tax collectors, and he eats with them. And so he told them a parable. So, yeah, we know this parable. This is very familiar. This is the parable of the prodigal son, right? We understand pretty quickly the younger son, the tax collectors and the sinners, they they have a lot of obvious sins that they need to repent of. But the older son, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, their issues are also obvious. While the older son has been faithful, he has stayed with his father, he served his father, we realize he's not done these things out of love for the father or a desire for his father. And so what this has done is this has caused an attitude of superiority to rise up within him, an attitude of a lack of need for repentance in his mind. But even more so, based on the mercy and compassion of his father toward his younger son, this has caused a very deep root of bitterness to grow within the older son. So the younger son may have a need to repent of his obvious sins and an obvious sinful lifestyle. But the older son has a need to repent of his bitterness and his lack of mercy and his lack of compassion and forgiveness. So as we look at this text, let's not miss out really on this Lenten theme of repentance that the Lord is stressing for us here in this story. We're journeying with him as he makes his way toward his passion and his ultimate goal of his death and his resurrection, which is what truly brings us salvation and as we consider the response of the father to each of his sons here in this familiar parable my hope is that you will be as encouraged as i was over this past week looking at this because we simply see that we can be in awe of the wonder and the love of our god who not only desires that we repent and turn to him but also we can be in awe of the kind of love that he embraces us with when we actually do and so starting really in that first big section in verses 11 through 16, we read here again. So he tells them this parable. They're, they're grumbling that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so he tells them this parable, and he said, There is a man who has two sons, and the younger of them says to his father, Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divides his property between them. And so not many days later, the younger son, he takes all the property that was divided to him, and he goes off into a far country. He leaves the country. And he squanders everything in reckless and sinful living. And so after he had spent everything, everything is gone. A famine arises and he starts to get hungry as we do when we don't have money. And so he goes and he hires himself out to somebody in the country that he's in who sends him out into the field to feed pigs. And he's feeding them and he's longing to be fed with the pig slop that he's feeding the pigs. And so... We read this, and in, in order to grasp the, really the mercy and the grace of the father in this story, but also, frankly, the depravity of each of these sons, we have to really understand kind of the context that's going on here, right, of what Jesus' audience would have understood. An older son in this society was always entitled to more of the share of the inheritance of his father's property. Based upon Levitical law, regardless of how much a father might love his older son or not, God had made a provision in his law to provide the older son with a proper Share in the amount of the inheritance. And so, based upon Levitical law, the older son is entitled to at least two thirds of the inheritance of his father's property, which is a good amount. And the rest is split among all of the younger siblings, no, mat- no matter how many there are. So, considering what the younger son is asking for here in verse 12, it's really no wonder that when we get to the end of this familiar story, it's no wonder that the older son is a little bit angry by his father accepting his younger brother back. Because his younger brother comes back, his father accepts him back into the family, meaning that now the older brother's inheritance is now going to be split again. He's going to get two-thirds of what's left, but it's been split again. Because of his father's great un- his love toward his ungrateful younger sibling, he now has less of an inheritance, right? So he's a little greedy. Right? But the other cultural context... To be aware of is that by the younger son's request, and we've all probably heard this on a sermon on this before, but by his request, he's basically telling his father, I'm done with you. I wish you were dead. Right? Give me what's coming to me when you die. I don't want to wait. If you were dead, I'd already have it. So just go ahead and give it to me. I want my money and I want to leave. But it's also important to note that this kind of request might have been uncommon, but it was not unheard of. And Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with this in both of the apocryphal works or the deuterocanonical works of Tobit and Sirach. Tobit and Sirach both outline the legal aspect of this kind of request in Tobit. But then in Sirach, we see the wisdom of not really quickly granting this request. And so for Jesus' audience hearing this parable, who would have been very familiar with both of those works... They would have recognized that these kinds of requests were sometimes granted, but they would have also understood and questioned the wisdom of granting a request so quickly. And so we see, though, that the father, he does grant the younger son's request. And at this point in the story, you, you, you have to imagine the original hearers of, of this parable, they're, they're, they're questioning the father's wisdom, right? Why would he grant the son's request? Why would the father be willing to encourage his younger son? to disrespect and repudiate his family. That's probably what's going through their minds. Because in this culture, preserving family relationships was of utmost importance, probably more than most of anything else. And we usually, when we consider our sin in light of our individual circumstances, we usually only consider how it affects us, right? We, We can see ourselves in the younger son here in some ways, right? He's just concerned with himself. He's very selfish. How is this going to affect me? I don't care about anyone else. Now, may, that may not be always the case, but usually more often than not, we, we are thinking, we're not thinking about others when we come and we give in to our temptations to sin. And Jesus, really what he's doing in this parable is he's, he's drawing our attention to the absurdity of that way of thinking. So just consider how really quick in his impatience and in his selfishness, the younger son, he brings shame not only upon himself based upon what we read in these first few verses, but also upon his entire family. What he's done is he has intentionally rejected the Abrahamic covenant. He has rejected a share in God's provision. He has rejected a share in the promised land. And as a consequence, what he receives, as we read here, is the shame of serving a foreigner. And in this culture, which which is completely unclean, but even more so, he receives as a consequence the shame of serving unclean animals. And so in a very clear way, what Jesus is telling his audience and what Luke is reminding us here is that by reaching this point, this younger son, he has reached complete and utter rock bottom in his life. He's feeding unclean pigs. He's lost his family. He's lost everything about himself by hiring himself out to a Gentile and by feeding unclean animals. He has completely rejected his identity in every way imaginable. One church father notes here, he says this. He says, this example, this is the experience that comes to everyone who refuses to trust himself to the father and delivers himself instead to a stranger. He flees the utmost, he flees the, the most generous provider and instead endures a severe judge. And so what Jesus is illustrating for us is is a life that has rejected the wisdom of God. In Proverbs 5, Solomon writes this, he says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. So just consider how valueless this younger son has now become, right? He's rejected his family, he's rejected the promise, he's rejected his identity. And by his desire to eat the food of the pigs, he is completely valueless. Again, in Proverbs in 13.25, we read, The righteous have enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. And our psalm really very well describes this kind of shame of the younger son, but also the shame of our sin. In, In light of the younger son, our sin brings us, like the younger son, our sin brings us into complete insignificance. Our psalm says this, David writes, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So, so really what we get is we get his position is completely bleak. I mean, he has no hope. Right? And so with, with his position this bleak, we come to verses 17 through 19 and we see this. He's, he's desiring to eat pig slop. And we see, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'm dying of hunger. I'm starving to death. So I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So with these verses, we really come to probably what is the main point of this whole parable. Our sins have Dire consequences. But the love and mercy and grace of God always draws us back to him. Just note how Jesus begins here in verse 17. He says, When this younger son, when he came to himself, I don't think this could be any more obvious, like personally. I was reading this and, and I thought, how obvious is this? Because he's clearly aware of his the bleakness of his position. I mean, he's living with pigs. He's desiring to eat pig slop. I mean, have you ever been on a farm and been around pigs? Not, not now i know jim has because he's nodding his head but not at a national fair where the pigs are all clean and they're being shown you know but but actual stinky gross nasty pigs it's nasty right pigs are gross animals and if you are so hungry that you're desiring to eat out of a pig trough it's only a matter of time i would imagine until you're shocked back into reality am i really wanting to eat that you've got to be pretty hungry but so but let's not forget this is a parable right so There's more here than just at what's on surface level. And I think there's more than just an obvious awareness to a situation. I think for us, this is an illustration of the regeneration that occurs when we are awakened to the depravity of our own sin. Because look again at the details that Jesus gives here. He says, when he came to himself, he is awakened to his depraved situation. He is driven by his physical hunger. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have have bread, but I'm starving to death with hunger. He knows that if he returns home, at the very least, he's going to be given bread. If he's treated like a hired servant, he will will at least have bread. And so consider how this illustrates for us that our physical needs, our physical condition can sometimes drive us to repentance. We read here in our psalm, again, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. I mean, how often do we find ourselves in a habitual sin, but we're, we're, we're forced to sprint toward the mercy and love of Christ? Amen. So consider, again, how this really is related to our Lenten practice of fasting and confession, right? We, we fast our physical bodies so that we might become more spiritually awakened to our need for God. Ambrose of Milan reminds us of this. He says, he says that even though God already knows all things, he awaits the words of your confession. And he goes on and he says... God awaits the words of your confessing. so so just confess. Confess so that Christ might intercede for you. Confess because he already has a reason to intercede for you, unless he died for you in vain. And then he says this. He says, the Father has a reason to forgive you because the Father wants what the Son wants. So confess and repent. And so Jesus illustrates for us here this awakening, this regeneration, but he also says it doesn't stop there. In verses eighteen and nineteen he says he shows us, he says, this your, your awakening, your regeneration, it has to be. it must be followed up with a literal and physical returning. In verse eighteen, we see this: so if i 've been awakened to my situation, he came to himself, if I go home i 'll have bread, so I will arise, and I will go to my Father." What Jesus tells us here is that repentance must always be combined with action. The younger son has to get up. And until he gets up and he goes home, reconciliation with his father will not be possible. His remorse over his depravity can only bear fruit if he returns back to his father. And this morning in Sunday school, has really made me think of Ahab, right? We were looking at Ahab in First in Kings, and he repents, bold, italicized air quotes. He sits in sackcloth and ashes, but he doesn't follow that up with any type of literal returning to Yahweh God. And so we see, though, here in the next few verses, a response over and above what the younger son expects from his father. He has been awakened to his depravity. He decides, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go home. But then his father responds in a way that he doesn't expect, which illustrates for us really how the father receives all who return to him in repentance and faith. But notice here in verses 20 and 21, That the younger son not only returns, but as he's returning, which is a literal acting out of his repentance, as he's confessing to his father, his father doesn't let him finish. His father cuts him off before he can finish uttering his confession. Listen listen to what happened. So, So he arose. He got up. He left that foreign country. He goes home. And as he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and kissed him, and the son said to his father, "Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the Father, which just reminds me again of Ephesians, right but God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us again, we're reminded Ambrose's statement here that God already knows everything before we confess it to him, but we are to confess anyway, and then he goes on and he says But it is the father who initiates our reconciliation to him. Looking at this verse, he says the father runs and embraces his son and kisses him. He falls on him. And Ambrose writes, God, who hears you pondering in the secret places of your mind, he runs to you. He sees your heart. He falls on your neck to raise you up. Christ falls on your neck to free your neck from the yoke of slavery. And to hang his sweet yoke upon your shoulders. And then then the father's actions here, they really illustrate for us even more the beauty of repentance, but the beauty of the message of the gospel. Because not only are we forgiven, but we are also restored, and we are received back into the inheritance of God. Look at what the father does. He does this. So he runs to his son, he, he grabs him, he embraces him, he kisses him, and then... As his son is repenting, he, he cuts him off and he says to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And bring a ring and put it on his hand. And bring shoes and put it on his feet. And then bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So all of these signify that he's, he's not only forgiven, but he's brought back into the inheritance of his family. And I think we really kind of neglect this particular quality when we're talking with someone about faith in Christ. Because how many times, if, if you've ever had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, how many times have you heard somebody say, I've done too much, God can't forgive me? And I think that's a pretty common excuse because somebody just doesn't want to go any further than that. They want to shut the conversation off. But, but I think we neglect to tell them, though, forgiveness isn't the final outcome of faith in Christ, it's the beginning. Because in Christ, we are restored. In Christ, we are adopted. In Christ, we are given the full inheritance of the kingdom of God. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3, he says, In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. You are received. You are all sons of God. You are sons of Abraham through faith. You all receive the inheritance, the full inheritance of the kingdom of God. And note note again beautifully how how David stresses this in our psalm today that Mike read for us a minute ago. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, one of the father's notes here, and he writes that God's devotion— is simply not content to merely restore us to innocence, but he also brings back our former honor. So what we see here in the reaction of the father is that in Christ, the fall is not only reversed, like we saw in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness a few weeks ago. The fall is not only reversed, but even better, we are restored in Christ. And so that's the reaction to the father, to the younger son, but what about the older son? Because if this parable is ultimately for the scribes and the Pharisees who are complaining that Jesus is just meeting with sinners and tax collectors. Then how is the older son's depravity illuminated here in this parable? Look, look at what happens. In verse 25, we see that his older son, he's out in the field, he's working in the field, he's being a faithful son at least to do, he hasn't left, he's working. But he comes near to the house and he hears music playing and dancing. And so he calls one of the servants and asks them what these things meant. And, and the servant tells him, well, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. It immediately clicks in his brain. He's received him back into the family. He's back into the full inheritance. And so he is angry. And he won't go in and celebrate that his younger brother has come home. And so his father comes out and he entreats him. And he answers his father and he says, I have served you these many years and you have never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. But this horrible, ungrateful son of yours has come home and you have killed the best calf for him. And so like the Pharisees and the scribes who are absolutely and utterly livid that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. We saw this illustrated really well in the episode we watched this past Wednesday of The Chosen. At the beginning where Jesus is eating in Matthew's house, and then Peter, trying to be tough, is really funny. He stands in the background, and he tries to buff up his, his, his biceps a little bit to say, you got a problem, guys? It's really funny. But, but we see these Pharisees, they're livid, they're absolutely livid that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so here, the same way, the older son is livid that his father has restored his younger brother back into the family and back into a full inheritance, And in this first verse, we see that he draws near to the house, much like how the tax collectors and the sinners in verse 1 have have drawn near to Christ, but but his reaction is different. His reaction is like the scribes and the Pharisees. He gets angry. And so once he hears the reason for the party and the reason for this commotion, he refuses to go in. He refuses to join in on the celebration. And Jesus' message to the scribes and the Pharisees in this parable really couldn't be clearer because he refuses to to join in on the heavenly rejoicing of the repentance of just one sinner. In one verse before this parable, in the parable of the lost coin, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before all the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, again, considering the laws of inheritance that govern this kind of family, you can, you can understand how his audience and even this, young, this older son is probably rightly at least a little frustrated. My inheritance is completely gone, right? He's going to be split among this younger brother again. And if you're like me and you're the oldest sibling in the family, you can at least relate a little bit to what it's like when it seems like your, your parents are a little bit more gracious to your younger sibling than your older than, than, you, than they were with you, right? I mean, just, you kind of feel that. But, but consider the older son's reaction that we see and how we see his depravity and his own need to repent. Consider his selfishness in his response. In verse 29, he says, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed you. And you have never given me a goat to celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours, he won't even call him his brother, when this son of yours has come home, you kill the fatted calf for him. You've never done that for me. I mean, consider how selfish this is. And so in his response, he shows that Not only is he selfish, but even in his own way, he is sinning against his father. The younger son at the beginning may have selfishly taken his inheritance, but the older son proves by his response that he's just simply waiting at his time. Both of them want their father to be dead, even if they went about it differently. And he considers himself really above reproach and above the need to repent. But again, the father, the father responds in mercy and in love and in grace. We see in verse 28, he's angry. The older son's angry. He won't go in, but his father comes out to him and he begs him, come in and celebrate with us. And he tells him in verse 31, he says, he says, son, you are with me always. And all that is mine is yours, but it's fitting that we celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He is law. He was lost, but is found And we see that rejoicing over the repentance of someone absolutely deserves celebration. And in the case of the younger son, he had rejected his family. He had rejected his heritage, his identity. And for all intents and purposes, as the father tells his older son here, he says, your brother was dead. He had rejected us to the point that he was dead. And as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, he says, you too were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But then the younger son is awakened to his depravity. He repents, and he gets up and he goes home. And we see, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. And interestingly, here at the end of this parable, like last week's parable, there's no response at the end. It's very open-ended. Last week, the vineyard owner didn't respond to the vine dresser's request for mercy and grace for the barren fig tree and in this case the older son doesn't respond to the father and Jesus' purpose of this is intentional because he's he's leaving it open ended to ask will the older son will the pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders will those of us who have been in the church all our lives will we repent and rejoice when others repent or will we continue to stew will they continue to stew and sulk in their bitterness Well, they continue to stew and sulk in their anger over the Father being forgiving and having mercy. And this wonderful parable, it really reminds us that not only are we to take advantage of this era of repentance that we saw last week with the parable of the barren fig tree, this new season of repentance, because as we see in our psalm, again, let everyone who is godly offer prayer at a time, Lord, when you may be found. So not only are we to take advantage of this time of repentance, but also... We are guaranteed that when we do repent, that we receive the loving embrace of the Father, restoration as sons of God, and a full and complete inheritance in Christ. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered.